Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week in our study from the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis, we ask the question, how does Joseph know how to interpret the dreams? As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. Bible, we're going to be in Genesis 41. Genesis 41. If I have yet to meet you, my name's Tim. I'm uh, glad you're with us this morning. There's a lot of us here this morning. Um, I'm glad you're here. Uh, We, uh, this morning, I want to spend a few minutes thinking together about uh, discernment. Discernment. Um, How do we, how how do you discern God's will? Uh, For those of us who are followers of Jesus, I understand that may not be all of us, but it's, it's many of us, if not most of us. Uh, that's, that's what we want the most, right? But more than anything else, we want to uh, not just make decisions and plan our lives according to what we want um, and according to kind of whatever is exciting to us in the moment. We actually want to follow the voice of God. We want to do what he says, not out of, not out of obligation or guilt or shame, um, but we actually believe that what God wants for us is what's best for us. And so what we want is we, we want to walk in line with what is God trying to teach us? What, what is, where does he want us to go next? How do I know? Uh, and that, that's the question. How do we do that? Um, how, how, do we, how, how do we follow the voice of God? How do we do discernment? And how do we know that the things that we're doing are the will of God? Right? It's easy to, to deceive ourselves. It's easy to convince ourselves. Um, but how do we know what we're doing uh, is what God would have us do. I have a, a good friend who will often say that um, their issue is, is when it's just, he, he says, when it's just me and God, what I really struggle with is what is me and what is God? Right? Like which, which voice I'm listening to? Is, it, is this just me convincing myself or is this the voice of God? Uh, that's, that's real, isn't it? I've, I've, I've felt that. Um, how, how do we discern the voice of God? How do we discern God's will? It is really confusing. It's important that we acknowledge that. Um, have you ever asked God for a sign? You ever pray one of those prayers? Like, God, give me, I'm stuck. I'm wrestling. I don't know what to do next. God, God could you give me a sign? Um, I, uh, like, just send something. Send a, like, send a hawk <laughs> flying in my backyard as I'm praying. And then I will know, God, that this is your answer to my prayer. And so you kind of, like, do the prayer with one eye kind of open. Like, there's no hawk. Okay. Or you do the reverse of that, which is, um, okay, God, if you don't want me to do the thing I'm going to do, send a sign, which is a little bit like kind of setting God up so that we can do whatever we want to do, right? Like, ah, well, there was no hawk, and so it's not my fault. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I asked for a sign. I, uh, I went to Hope College. Um, it, it's the best college of the options if you're, if you're considering a college. I went to Hope College, uh, I, uh, and at Hope College, there's this really popular excuse, maybe this is unique to Hope, but I'm guessing it's probably true for those of you who went to Kelvin, something like this as well, uh, that uh, we would use, or people would use, God as an excuse to break up with someone. You've experienced this. This is a significant traumatizing kind of thing. Uh, like, uh, you know, God really told me that I needed to end this relationship. It's like, oh, really? Yeah. How? Uh, well, you know, I asked God for a sign. I said, God, if you wanted me to, to, like, 
to stay in this relationship. Get, like, show me a four-leaf clover. <laughs> but, but it's winter in Michigan. <laughs> and then what do you do when you're like, well, I asked for a sign that if God wanted us to stay, he would bring snow. So uh, look around. Uh, like, you, you ever play that? Like, it, it, can, it can feel, how do we do it? Discernment is difficult. Um, how do you do it? Do you ask for a sign? Is that, is that the best way to discern God's will? It, like, to wait for a sign? There's that famous story in our Old Testament about the hand writing on the wall. Is that what we're supposed to wait for? Is that what we're supposed to ask for? Uh, and, and I don't want to sound too cynical. I actually do think God does give us those kinds of moments, um, from time to time, that happens. Uh, when I was a freshman at Hope, I, uh, I remember during orientation week, uh, there was this big worship service that we would do uh, at orientation week that would later become the gathering service once school year started. And I was a scared freshman kid, and this is all brand new, first time I'd ever uh, been outside of my home and lived outside of my home. And uh, there's all of the new, like, what? okay, all this freedom, but also, like, how do I fit in? And everyone's really loud that first weekend of school because everyone's trying to figure out who they are and where they're going to fit. Am I going to find friends? Will they like me? All that stuff. I was in my own head. And I remember this moment in this worship service where uh, the band was playing. It was, it was Dwight Beal, if you're familiar with the name. Um, Dwight was our worship leader, and Dwight was leading uh, a song. And the song had a really simple refrain. It was called Let It Rain. And uh, if you're familiar with the song, it just kind of repeats this line, let it rain, let it rain, open the floodgates of heaven. And it really just repeats that refrain for like seven minutes or something. And uh, I, was, uh, I was there, and I, like three minutes into the song, I'm not making this up. There was a crack of thunder, and it just started downpouring. And, uh, and I just remember being like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. It's bigger than me. Um, now, um, I, you look back on that, and you say, was that God giving me a sign? Was, was this God saying, uh, I'm here. You're going to be okay? Was that, that God, was that why it rained, or was it a, a low-pressure front bumped into a high-pressure front causing the, like, I don't know. It was cool, though. It was cool. Um, and, and maybe it was both. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly. But in that moment, in, at that time, that's what I needed. I needed that moment. Is that what we're supposed to wait for? Um, and by the way, the, it's the, the worst problem with signs, isn't it, that like, how do you know you're not reading into things? How do you know you're not looking for something you're looking for? You ever play that game where you're trying to buy a new car, and then all you see is the car you want driving down the road, and you never saw them before? Um, like, how do I know that I'm not just looking for the thing? Uh, and and if, as Christians, the thing we want more than anything else, and we do want this, we want to follow the voice of God. We want to do what God would want us to do. Again, not just because we want to be good Christians or we just want to be obedient. We want that, um, but we actually believe, we actually believe that God knows what we don't know. God wants what we often don't want. God wants what's best for us. And so we want to align our lives with that. And yet discernment is really, really difficult. I say that because we are now in our fourth week of our Joseph saga. We've been following the great-grandson of Abraham, a kid named Joseph, guy named Joseph at this point. And, uh, and we are now in a, a scene in Joseph's life. We're almost halfway through with Joseph. And uh, we come to an interesting moment. It's a moment in which Joseph is going to have three different people ask him to interpret their dreams. What is God trying to say to me right now? Um, and, and they've got pretty interesting dreams. 
And uh, this story, coupled by a series of conversations that I've had, especially leading up to baptism, and a lot of these, uh, your stories that you've been sharing about baptism, I've been thinking a lot about this discernment and, and how do we know. Um, so if it's okay, what I'd like to do is I want to read the story, uh, and we'll pause a little bit, but I'll read the story, and then I want to just float by you a few things that I've seen in the story and I've learned from this story, uh, and hopefully it is, uh, we land and it's really practical and maybe even helpful uh, to where we're at, and how, how do we do it? So we left our story in Genesis 39. Let me remind you of where we left off, or if you weren't here, I'll give you the quick catch-up. Uh, Joseph has been sold by his brothers in, into slavery. That's Genesis 37. Uh, and he's sold, and he ends up uh, uh, in the slave, uh, he, a slave in the house of a slave master named Potiphar, and he's an Egyptian. And as we saw last week, Joseph stays faithful in, in Potiphar's house, uh, even when Potiphar's wife advances on him. And says, come to bed with me. And this whole scene we looked at last week. He stays faithful, even running from her. Leaving his coat in her possession. uh, Which she then uses, Potiphar's wife uses this coat as a way to frame Joseph. And say, "He, he, he tried to assault me. He tried to attack me. Potiphar his slave master, uh, he hears the story and then he sees the coat and he says, okay, the evidence is against Joseph. My wife's telling the truth. And Potiphar is livid. And that story ends up with Potiphar throwing Joseph into uh, a a dungeon. Uh, The word in your Bible in the Hebrew means a pit. He's thrown into a pit or a dungeon into prison. And uh, that's where chapter 40 is going to pick up. Because of time, we're going to uh, we're going to skip chapter 40. I'm sorry to do that, but just uh, for the nature of time. Uh, and we'll, we'll look mostly at 41 this morning. But, but here's the, the short version of chapter 40. Uh, in prison, Joseph's going to meet two men who've also been thrown in prison by the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he meets these guys, and um, they're both having these dreams. And they don't know what to do with these dreams. And uh, they're different dreams. Each guy's got his own dream. Um, but they each have the dream, and it keeps repeating itself again and again and again and again. Every night they're having this dream. And so they ask Joseph, do you have any idea what these, what these particular dreams mean? And Joseph has a profound response. Uh, this is what Joseph says. He says, they say, we both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, here's the key. Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Now, Joseph's had his own dreams before, if you remember earlier in the story. Um, He knows that God can speak through dreams. And so he says, okay, I get it. You had a dream. The dream's yours. But the interpretation belongs to God. If you want to know what the meaning of the dream is, uh, it's it's not going to come just from, like, thinking a lot about it. Like, it's going to come from God. God's the one who gives the interpretation. So tell me your dream and I'll, I'll see if I have an interpretation for you. They didn't tell the dreams. And the dreams are cryptic and weird like most dreams are, right? When you ever, you ever kept like a dream journal? Dreams are weird. Um, I've had it before where I'll wake up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, that, I had like a dream or something. I'm like, that would make a great sermon illustration. And then I wake up in the morning and I'm like, what on earth did I write down, right? Like, uh, weird things. And their dreams were weird too. Budding vines, grapes, birds, baskets, the kind of dreams that you have them and you shrug them off. Like, okay, that was just a weird dream. The problem is they keep having the same dreams. And so this weird dream, it's not like they can just shrug it off. It just keeps coming back up. 
And so Joseph hears the dreams, and he offers an interpretation to each of them of what their dreams mean. And he's right. The dreams end up, his interpretation ends up playing out exactly as as he says it's going to play out. Which brings us back to the main question I want to ask this morning is how? How does Joseph know the answer? How does he know? Uh, If you read the stories closely, there's no angel coming down to Joseph and saying, here's the meaning of the dreams. There is no sign, a hand writing on the wall saying, here's what the dreams mean. There is no like booming voice from heaven. It's just, how does, how does Joseph know that, how to interpret these dreams? Now, we're going to skip 40 because I think in chapter 41, we kind of see a little bit clearer uh, uh, exactly kind of what Joseph's up to in this. And, uh, and Joseph's going to have the two prisoners and they're going to ask the question. But then in chapter 41, another person has a dream. And this person just so happens to be the most powerful, the most famous, the most uh, successful man in the entire world. Uh, He happens to be the king of Egypt, the pharaoh himself. He's got a dream. And that's where we'll pick up our story. Uh, Genesis 41, beginning in verse 1. When two full years had passed, uh, that's since Joseph interpreted those prisoners' dreams. So since two years after that, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile River when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank, and the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin, scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. Okay, so weird dreams. Seven cows, uh, seven like healthy, fat cows, and then seven what we're told are sleek, are, are ugly and gaunt cows. And then he has another dream. Seven heads of grain, full fruit. And then seven heads of grain, no fruit. Weird dreams. Pharaoh wants to know what do they mean. That's his question. What do these dreams mean? I had, this, I had these dreams. So in the morning, verse 8, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dream, but no one could interpret them for him. So he brings all the magicians, all the wise men, all the king's horses and all the king's men. He could not figure out his dreams. And no one could understand what the meaning of these particular dreams were. Then the chief cupbearer, pause here. The chief cupbearer happens to be one of the guys that was in prison with Joseph that he interpreted his dream two years earlier. So he's going to speak up. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Uh, Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. He told him our dream, we told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. I should, I should acknowledge, uh, Joseph didn't just do the, hey, God wants to make you healthy, successful, and wise. Right? That wasn't the meaning. One of the dreams was, yeah, it's going to go okay for you. The other was, uh, sorry, bro, you're going to die on a stick. Um, 
That was the nature of the dreams. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Now, again, this is a significant line. Last week we talked about how Joseph was faithful. Just notice here, Joseph will never, uh, he, again and again, he's, he's not saying, hey, look, look how, I can climb the ranks by talking about how smart I am, or I can like, use my leverage. He, again and again and again, he's crystal clear. I can't interpret your dreams, but God can. So I'll try. Like, give me your dreams, and I will try, see if God's got something for me um, in this that I can kind of understand your dreams. But I'm not the one to do it. Verse 17, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. When out of the river, there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows came and ate the the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing in a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin, and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It's the same dream. It's one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh. And again, notice who he's going to give credit to. God has shown Pharaoh what he's going to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God's going to do it soon. So, uh, pause here. The Pharaoh has... These dreams, he brings them to Joseph. Uh, No one can interpret them. All the magicians, all the wise people, no one can interpret them. But Joseph is able to interpret them. Now again, Joseph's already said multiple times, interpretation belongs to God. I can't do this on my own. Interpretation belongs to God. But somehow God's given him the ability to interpret the dreams. And again, my question that I want us to come back to is how? How does he do it? The text doesn't tell us that there's some angel that comes down. There's no booming, there is no booming voice, like clouds part, and there's a booming voice that's like, oh, the seven fat cow dream. Um, let me fill you in. There's none of that. Like, there's none of that. There's, there's I love anytime I do that, it's, it's just fun. Uh, <laughs> there's none of that. Uh, Joseph just seems to know the meaning of the dreams. There's no, like, sign in the text that there's a sign in the text, right? Like, it's just, Joseph just seems to know. He, and he's able to offer advice to Pharaoh. Here's his advice, verse 33. 
And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of all the land of Egypt. Which I kind of find funny, right? Like he's just, you can imagine all the magicians and the wise people up against that back wall. And Joseph's like, here's the meaning of your dream. Find a person who's wise and discerning to like help you with the next steps. Um, uh, <laughs> you gotta imagine them staring at their toes, right? Like, uh, uh, uh. oh, and by the way, uh, that's wise person that you put in charge should come up with a plan. And just in case you're like not quite sure, let me give you what I would do if I was in charge. Verse 34, let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. That's what I would do. Pick a guy. Ah, the the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this dude? One in whom the spirit of There is the Spirit of God. (laughs) Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and as wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all the people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, and he put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in the chariot as his second in command and the people shouted before him, make way, make way. Thus, he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. That's our story. Joseph gets the job. He interprets the dreams, he gets the job and, uh, and he goes just like that from being a prisoner to once again being the second in, in command, the, the second most important person at this time in history, in the world. Pharaoh's the most powerful man in the world. He's now second in command of Pharaoh. And all of it is because Joseph can interpret these these dreams. But again, the question I want to ask is how? How does he do it? How does he know the answer? Joseph is, it's like, we remember last week we talked about the secret decoder ring that used to come in cereal boxes. It's like Joseph has this secret decoder ring and he's somehow able to do it. I want to propose to you that uh, there is one detail in Joseph's dream, or in Pharaoh's dream. It's a weird detail. It's in his dream. That this particular detail is the reason Joseph can hear the dream and he can say, I know the meaning of the dream. I can interpret the dream for you. And this one particular detail, uh, all those magicians and all those wise people that line up the back wall, they, they don't know this. They, they can't do this. There's a detail in the story I propose to you, there's a detail that uh, if you use your secret decoder ring, <laughs> or if you know your text, there's a detail in the story that Joseph allows Joseph to be able to, to figure it out. What's the detail? Hold that question. Um, before we go there, I want you to notice something in the story. Uh, it's a pattern. Um, there's been a pattern that's been replaying in the Joseph story. Uh, we've been using the word deja vu. Uh, there's like a deja vu in this particular story. Um, Joseph's life up until this point has been a bit like, remember the movie Groundhog's Day? It's been a, Joseph's having like a Groundhog's Day experience. He keeps reliving the same story again. That's one of my favorite images ever. Um, again and again and again and again. The, the events in Joseph's life are like stuck on loop. 
If you notice the pattern, we've talked about it a little bit. Uh, Genesis 37, here's, here's the start of the pattern. Joseph is given a coat by his dad. It's the fancy coat. And his dad says, this coat, we, we talked about this last week, the coat is a symbol that you are going to function. I see you as the firstborn of the family. You're going to get more than, you're going to be the leader, the bachor in Hebrew. And by giving him the coat, it's, it's Jacob, his dad's way of saying, you're going to be the second most powerful person in my house. Then uh, Joseph is going to have some dreams. And, uh, and oh yeah, I got the graphic. He's going to have some dreams and he's going to tell them to his brothers and to his dad. And then that's going to lead to his brothers kind of catching him alone and stripping him of his coat. Uh, and then they go back to dad with the coat, which they then kind of conjure up a plan. They dip it in, in goat's blood and they say, and, and Jacob's like, yeah, an animal must have gotten my boy. They take Joseph and they throw him in a, in the word in your Bible is a pit in the Hebrew. They throw him in a pit. Uh, that story happens in Genesis 37. Uh, Genesis 38, not about Joseph. It's about Joseph's brother, Judah. And many of the details, though, are familiar in the story. We've got a coat. We've got that coat being used to deceive or clothing that's used to deceive. And then we've got that same language that you find in chapter 37 of that coat then being brought out this time to Judah and saying, examine it. And Judah saying, oh, no. Um, that's chapter 38. Then you get to chapter 39, and you've got the details again in order. You've got Joseph rising to the ranks in Potiphar's house. He is becoming the second in command. That's what we're told. He gets dressed in Potiphar's clothing. He becomes second in command. Uh, then you've got, uh, it's not so much dreams in chapter 39, but there's a whole lot of come to bed with me in Potiphar's wife. Uh, she then strips him of his coat again. Um, we've got this taking off of the coat. And then that coat being used as evidence against him in which it, he eventually finds himself in a pit. And again, the language in Hebrew is he finds himself in a pit. Uh, that's chapter 39. Do you see how Joseph's like, it's like deja vu. It's like his Groundhog's Day. This, these events keep coming back up again and again. Now, it's interesting, and we'll go into this in future weeks because it's actually really interesting to what's going on in our story. But I'll just give you it now, and then we'll come back to it. In chapter 40, the same events happen again, but this time they happen in reverse. Did you notice? Chapter 40, 41, sorry, 41. Chapter 41, Joseph starts in a pit. They then, uh, they take him out of the pit, they dress him, they shave him and, and clean him up for the Pharaoh, put like a, the clothing that's presentable for the Pharaoh. They give him a coat, essentially. Uh, and uh, then um, he's, he's, so his, his grave clothes, his jail clothes are taken off. Pharaoh has some dreams. What do the dreams mean? He interprets the dream. Pharaoh then dresses him in fine linen and says to him, you're going to be the second most powerful man in my house. It's like the same details, only in reverse. What do we do with this? What do we make of it? It's the same pattern. Again, not once, not twice, not three times. Four times this pattern plays out in the life of Joseph. So what do we make of it? Now, a logical question here is, does Joseph recognize the pattern? And we don't know for sure. Can't, I can't tell you it's not in the text that he recognizes this pattern plays out again and again. However, I think it's likely. In fact, 
especially that detail of Potiphar's wife ripping off his coat and then using the coat as a part of her lie to frame him. Like, that's got to throw Joseph into a little bit of PTSD, right? Like, I've been here before. I've had my coat taken off me. I, and then to be back in a, in a pit, like, I, I've been here before. Those old emotions have to come flooding back. So does he recognize it? I think he does. You know why? Um, because I actually think the whole reason Joseph is going to be able to interpret Pharaoh's dream has to do, it's somehow linked to his ability to recognize these kinds of patterns. There's one detail in Pharaoh's dream that if you understand the detail, it's an odd detail, but if you understand the detail, you can interpret the meaning of his dream. So what's the detail? Hold that thought for just a moment. Uh, let's go back through the dream and let's see if we can like, put our like, decoder ring, our text knowledge of looking for these patterns uh, in the biblical text. And let's see if we can figure out together what's the detail that Joseph, when he hears the dreams, he's like, I know what that means. Okay, here's the dream. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile when out of the river... There came up seven cows, fat and sleek. By the way, the description in Hebrew for fat and sleek. This is why this is going to be a little bit difficult for us because we don't speak Hebrew. But uh, I'll help you. Um, fat and sleek in Hebrew is vayafot toar. Vayafot toar. Now, if you're Joseph and you hear this description of the cows, vayafot toar, what does it remind you of? It turns out that that exact phrase, vayafot toar, shows up one other spot in reference to a person in all of Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That phrase is used to describe a person, and it shows up one other time in all of the first five books of the Bible. Where? Years earlier, Joseph's dad, Jacob, he, uh, remember, he's on the run. He finds himself at Laban, his uncle's house, and there he sees this young woman, and He's smitten by this young woman. Uh, here's the story, verse 29. Her name is Rachel. Um, it happens to be Joseph's mom. Um, we read this, uh, Genesis 29, 16 through 17. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. That phrase, lovely figure and was beautiful, in Hebrew, literally, look this up, in Hebrew, literally, it is, any guesses? It's same words, vayafotuar. I know, I know. So now, if you're Joseph, and Pharaoh's like, I have this dream, I don't know what to do with the dream, and he starts telling you the dream, and as he's telling you the dream, you're thinking, like, wait a minute. He's using the exact same words, the exact same order of the words. It's only used once in all of the Torah, to describe a person, you're just, if you're, if you're Joseph, you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is really weird. Uh, I know this cow. This cow is my mom. <laughs> Which, by the way, I do not recommend telling your mom that she's the cow. Um, <laughs> but then Pharaoh's going to keep going. This is like a, this is like a Rachel cow. That, that, what you're describing is like a Rachel cow. Pharaoh keeps going on with his dream. After them. Seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. 
I had never seen such ugly cows in all of the land of Egypt. <gasps> Seven more cows. They're really ugly. Hebrew, the word is varakot basar. The key word, rakot, ugly. Varakot basar. That word also shows up one time in the first five books of the Bible. And that word shows up in reference to a person in the first five books of the Bible. Uh, any guesses as to who? Yeah, that whole, the only description we're given of Leah, we read it earlier, is that she had weak eyes. Uh, in Hebrew, that is rakot ayin, rakot layin. It literally means ugly eyes or thin eyes. So Pharaoh has a dream. Uh, I saw seven Rachel cows, and uh, they were grazing with seven Leah cows. And then this, the thin, ugly cows, the Leah cows, ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. The Rachel cows. But then he adds this. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. Which again, sounds a bit like the, the Leah-Rachel story. If you remember the story, uh, Jacob doesn't get to marry his, the, the gal he wants to marry, Rachel. He ends up marrying Leah. Um, but we're told this detail. That he served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days. He couldn't remember the seven years of labor because of his love for her. Okay, so if you're Joseph, you know this story. This is your story. You recognize the pattern. You hear this, the Pharaoh telling the story, and you're thinking, I know who you're talking about. Those exact words were used by the Torah to describe my mom, Rachel, and my aunt, her sister, Leah. Okay, now we can get to the one detail in the story, in his dream, that allows Jacob to hear the dream and say, I know what the meaning of the dream is. If you're reading the text closely, he hears the dream and his direct response is, oh, this is the meaning. What's the detail? The seven cows are what? Seven years. That's what Joseph does. The same thing you just did. Because you, you know the story. Seven, seven cows, seven Rachel cows, seven Leah cows. I remember my dad telling me the story about how he had to work for seven years to get Rachel, but then she swapped out and he marries Leah and he has to work another seven years to get Leah. Joseph hears this dream and his immediate response is, uh, oh, here's the meaning of the dream. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads are of grain are seven years. How does Joseph know the detail? That's how long he had. His dad had to work. There's seven Rachel years, and then there's seven Leah years, seven years of abundance, and then there's going to be seven years of scarcity. The, the detail, that like the whole, the, the cows are years. And it's because Joseph knows this detail then that he can put a plan in place uh, okay, store the crops up during the good years because those years, um, they're going to go and then you're gonna be, they're going to be forgotten, just like your dream says. They're going to come and they're going to be forgotten. They're going to feel good at the time, but then they're going to be forgotten, kind of like uh, the, the years my dad had to work for Leah. They were just forgotten because of what's coming, which is, okay, now we're going to have seven lean years. So what I need you to do is I want you to store up the crops during the good years uh, and save them for when the lean years come. And while the world starves your storehouses will be full. I find that interesting. Isn't that brilliant? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. Uh, and God didn't need to send an angel. Here's what the meaning of the dream is. God didn't need to part the clouds. God didn't need to like put a hand writing on the wall. All God needed to do in this particular moment was for Joseph to know the, his story and connect the dots. To know his story well enough and to see the patterns. Which brings us back to the question we started with. How do we discern the will of God? Sometimes there is a miraculous clear sign. It, lightning and thunder crack at Hope College and it starts raining and okay, I feel seen. But most often, this is not how God speaks. Most often. I, I cannot prove it to you. But I will speculate that uh, 150 years from now, when we all get to heaven and we're talking to God and we say something like, uh, God, I, I prayed to you and, uh, and I asked to see you. And sometimes I get it. I was praying and I wasn't really paying attention. I was just kind of going through the motions. But sometimes I was. And where were you, God? I was desperate. I needed something. Where were you? Did you hear my prayer? Did you... Why didn't you say anything back to me? And I wonder if God's response might um, be like, did you look at your life? Did you watch your life? Did you learn from the past experiences? Did you not see? Uh, especially the painful moments, especially the moments that like you didn't think I was around. I was there. I was present for those moments. We, 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 uh, are really good at avoiding thinking about the dark stuff. We don't want to go back there. And so we block them, and we numb them, and we bury them. But as you're going through those events, did you get the sense of deja vu, the sense that this has happened before? And because I learned something the first time it happened, I now know what to do. Did you ever have that sense? It's like, it's like we have this private message thread, us and God, Right? Like, I can imagine God saying, like, it's like, we have this, you and I, we have this private message thread. There's a conversation we've been having that no one else can understand. People will give you advice, but there's a part of this conversation that you and I have been having um, that no one else can fully understand because the message thread is your life. And throughout it, now maybe you're thinking, I, I still don't know what to do with that. Okay, but, but at the very least, did you recognize that in those dark moments where you couldn't see me, I was there. It's like I've been tapping you on the shoulder this whole time. And even when you didn't know what I meant, what I was trying to alert you to was, I'm still here. I'm still here. So again, how do we discern the voice of God? First and most obvious and the most direct answer is the one we often say, read your Bible and pray. It's good. That's a good thing to do. Um, the psalmist says that God's word is like a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It's not a spotlight to our path. It's like a lamp to our feet. And a light. It's like the next step. We read the scriptures and we, okay, I think I know what God's telling me to do. Paul, uh, New Testament uh, church planter, Paul, um, writing to Christians, will talk about how certain churches are better than other churches because some churches hear what Paul's teaching and they just do it. But then the better churches listen to what Paul's teaching and then they hold it against the scriptures and they discern whether or not Paul is just making this stuff up or whether or not he's actually in line with the scriptures. That, he says, is, is better. 
So start there. Start with prayer and start with the scriptures. Often I've discovered that I find my story resonated by, like, there's somebody else in the Bible. I'm like, oh, that's, I feel what you felt, Elijah, and this is how you approach that situation. And so I think I know how to approach the situation because I've learned from them. Okay, that's the obvious answer. A far harder step, and also as uh, I think is a deeply spiritual step, is uh, perhaps God has been speaking to you the whole time in and through your life. Uh, This is why we do the work at South Harbor Church of talking about this stuff, right? Like we talk about family of origin. I know for some of you that's like, please don't bring that up. That's like the most painful moments of my life. I don't want to talk about that. Or the, the seasons of your youth where you were bullied or where you felt out of place and you think, I don't want to talk about that. Um, That's why we talk about introspection, looking inside. It is deeply spiritual work. Uh, It's been my experience, and if I'm reading the Bible correctly, uh, I don't think I'm the only one who's experienced this, that um, when we're going through difficult times, the hardest stuff, uh, it is really easy to not see where God is working, to actually feel like God has abandoned you. There's a really great book, old book now, I'm um, called The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross. And he spends this uh, really beautiful analogy of how it feels at times that God has abandoned you. I used to go to worship and I'd feel it, and now I feel nothing. And St. John of the Cross will say, and often it's because what God is trying to do in that moment is move us deeper to not just depending on our emotions, but to actually trust God as God, even when we don't feel it. We live in a a world right now where we are so addicted to a dopamine hit that we will jump from uh, church to church or from experience to experience seeking the emotional high when maybe what God is trying to do is is deepen us so that our faith isn't just dependent on what we feel. Uh, Oftentimes, though, when we go through the hard stuff, we, we don't know where God is. However, if we don't just blot it out, bury it, numb it, ignore it, when we look back on our life, I think what we discover is that we can look back at even those hardest moments and realize that God was present in that whole thing. Think about Joseph. Is there any more like dark chapter in his life than the Rachel Leah thing? What happened to his mom? What happened to his aunt? Uh, then later when, when Jacob's arranging the family by who he likes the most, like that's your family. And you're just like this innocent bystander as a kid. And is there any more painful moment than when you're th- thrown in prison again and again, uh, thrown in a dungeon again and again, accused, lied about? Uh, and yet Pharaoh has a dream and it was that dark stuff that allows him to interpret the dream. It's the ugly stuff that allows him to understand how God has been working. It's really difficult to see where God has been working in our past, uh, especially in the hard stuff. But I, uh, I challenge you, I, I, I've challenged myself on this, that if we're willing to go back there, what we begin to discover in those seasons is God was forming something in us. God was shaping us. God was giving us a resilience, a perseverance, a grit, or just a softer heart, so that later in life, 
we can see him for somebody else. Uh, it's the, the really painful. I've seen, uh, those of you who are moms, I've seen this play out again and again here, that you, you lost a child um, through miscarriage, and you then meet somebody who loses a child through miscarriage, the most painful moment of your past, and you're able to pastor them. Uh, an exercise I find helpful, it's a real simple one, um, if, draw a line. Imagine your life is this line. Uh, everything above it, this is all the good stuff. This is weddings and first kisses and new babies and uh, conversion moments, spiritual highs, mission trips, all that stuff. Uh, everything below the line is all the hard stuff. It's all the losing of job, the first breakup, the first time you, uh, you were really hurt, uh, the first time you stood in the visitation line and you saw them, and it was that weird moment where it's like they're there physically, but they're not there. All that stuff. That's all below the line. What we often can do in this stuff although we usually miss it too, is on the stuff above the line, we can say, oh yeah, God was there. Thank you, God. That was awesome. Thank you. Often that's so good that we don't even think to do that. Um, we just kind of, it's another day and we love it. Um, but this stuff down here, when we hit this stuff, we often will say to God, where were you? Why aren't you there? However, by, by plotting it out like this, I, I wager that if you look back on your life, it was in this stuff especially that God formed you the deepest. Those same moments where you're like, where were you, God? Now you look back on and you realize, I'm a different person because I went through that. We often think of our faith, our faith moment as like a moment where we said yes to Jesus. But often a faith, our, our lives look a lot more like this. It's highs and really highs and really, really lows. So my challenge is if uh, this, is a, this is how I usually walk people through their faith story. Like, don't just think of your faith story as a moment, but like, tell me the story of how God has weaved, woven in and out of your life. You may not even have recognized that God was God until like right here, um, but he was present for all of the moments. Uh, but it's important that we remember them. Uh, Jesus, uh, to make the turn to communion, um, Jesus will, will uh, actually... Do something really interesting in, in communion. He will say in communion that I want you to remember uh, the darkest week of your life. Don't just jump to resurrection. I want you to remember the cross and the suffering. Um, because if we skip past, if we yada yada this, if we skip past the suffering, you may forget that I'm with you in your suffering. Uh, the way we take communion here is we will have four lines in the front. And we've got gluten-free options on the side tables. Um, and when you're ready, you can come forward and you'll dip the bread in the juice. Uh, and, um, and we will say something like the body of Christ was given for you and the blood of Christ was shed for you. Um, but take this moment as an opportunity to say to God, okay, God, I, I, I'm in. Um, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, uh, grant us the grace that as we reflect back on the hard stuff, you would remind us, Lord, that you were present in it. Help us to see you in it. Help us to go back there so that, Lord, we can move forward. Give us the faithfulness of Joseph. Give us the insight of Joseph. And Holy Spirit, would you um, 
do what Joseph even couldn't do, Lord? Would you allow us to come and declare your name to everyone we meet because of it? Uh, Lord, we love you and we trust you and we pray this in your name. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 10 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.